Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have Part 2 of Hollywood on the Moon by Henry Kuttner, originally published in the April 1938 issue of Thrilling Wonder Stories. This story is included in our new pulp collection from Brick Pickle Media, Pulp Adventures on the Moon. You can find more info and order the book at brickpicklemedia.com books or from Amazon or any other bookstore. And that link is also in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2019. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. And with that, on with the show. Chapter 3. Close Shot, Ganymede. The red thing was moving closer, very, very slowly. It looked something like a centipede, but its glistening body was plump and cylindrical and seemed distended. Moreover, all over it grew wiry, pliant ciliar tubes, and these propelled it over the moss. It hesitated and coiled up suddenly like a great spring. Quade's breath hissed between his teeth. A bolt of white flame leaped from the muzzle of the pistol. Chapter 3. Close Shot, Ganymede The red thing was moving closer, very, very slowly. It looked something like a centipede, but its glistening body was plump and cylindrical and seemed distended. Moreover, all over it grew wiry, pliant cilia or tubes, and these propelled it over the moss. It hesitated and coiled up suddenly like a great spring. Quade's breath hissed between his teeth. A bolt of white flame leaped from the muzzle of the pistol, and simultaneously the monster flashed into the air toward them, disintegrating as it sprang. Quade, his arm about Kathleen, propelled her away with a wary backward glance. At a safe distance, he paused. Look yourself over. Those little feelers can burrow into your body, even if they're only an inch long. He examined his clothing carefully, and the girl did likewise. What was it, Tony? she asked at last. I don't think I've got any on me. If you had, you'd know it by now. Those are the red leeches, the nastiest thing on nine planets. He holstered the gun and started along the bore, the girl keeping pace with him. We'll have to keep our eyes open now, Quade said. I'd really forgotten about the leeches. If you hear me yell or see anything coming at your face, put your hands over your nose and mouth and keep them there no matter what happens. Kathleen looked frightened. What do they do? You saw what this did to Giorso. If I hadn't killed that leech, every one of those little tubes on its body would have dropped off eventually and become new individuals. They're hardly as long as your little finger then, and they coil up on the ground till some animal or man comes along. Then they spring for his mouth or nose and burrow down inside his lungs or stomach, feeding as they go. They're enormously elastic and simply eat until only the skin of their host is left, and then they wait until the next course comes by. The girl shuddered and increased her pace. The bouncer suddenly popped up behind a boulder and hopped toward the two. Quaid made a threatening gesture. Beat it. Go chase a meteor. Do you want me to wring your neck? Oh, leave him alone, Tony, Kathleen said. He's company. He got that leech started after us, Quaid grunted. Company, eh? The bouncer jiggled up and down excitedly. More company than you are, you cold-blooded fish, he told Quaid, who promptly reached for a stone. Bill squeaked shrilly and fled to Kathleen, to whose leg he clung fearfully, casting quick glances over his furry shoulders. Oh, stop it, Tony, 
Kathleen said, trying not to laugh. It isn't his fault. He just broadcasts thoughts. You said so yourself. Movie struck, spoiled brat, Bill declared, and Kathleen's chin went up. Without another glance at Quaid, she marched along the bank of the boar. Mars rose above the horizon, a pale reddish globe larger than the sun, but far less bright. Quaid kept looking up the channel, listening intently. At last, he hesitated. Do you hear something? Listen. Kathleen was still annoyed, but she cupped her ear with a small hand. Yes, I think so. A roaring, very low. That's it. Come on, quick. Quaid caught her arm and hurried toward a carn of rocks some distance from the bank. It's the boar, the tide. Mars is dragging around the planet. We want to be high and dry when it gets here. Step it up, can't you? I'm, I'm hurrying as fast as I can. Kathleen gasped, a sharp pain in her chest. The atmosphere, lacking sufficient oxygen, had, held, had told on the two and they were exhausted by the time they reached the summit of the mound. There they lay panting for breath and looking north along the boar. A great wave came sweeping up the channel. Thirty feet high, overflowing the banks and spreading out over the surrounding ground, it came rushing southward and involuntarily, Kathleen huddled close to Quaid. The tidal wave smashed against the base and spray showered the two on its top. Bill, cowering in the hollow of Kathleen's arm, squeaked faintly and crouched down, hiding his head in ineffectual paws. The girl followed his example, and as the rocking thunder of mighty water shook the ground, she shut her eyes and burrowed her face into Quade's shoulder. Grinning, he put his arm around her. The tide drove on south. In its wake came floating huge creatures like turtles, with tall, webbed fins standing up like sails on their backs. Flat reptilian heads lifted, peering around curiously as the things tacked and veered in the winds. The boar lifted in its wake. Kathleen had wriggled free. What are those? She wanted to know. Quagg shrugged. We don't know half the forms of life that exist on the planets, much less the asteroids. Anyway, I don't care what they are. We'll be at camp soon, and I can find out what Perrin was up to. Shall we get started, Kate? She nodded, and they picked their way down the mound. The rocks and moss were damp, but the flood had passed, though the channel was almost filled with a swiftly racing stream. The sun went down, and with it, go, with its going, the sun went down, and with its going, Mars seemed to spring out in startling crimson radiance. The two satellites were visible as tiny spots of light near the red planet. The air was colder now, and there was an ache in Kathleen's chest that gnawed painfully, though she did not mention it to Quaid. She was watching her path carefully to avoid stumbling in the eerie reddish twilight, and so was Quaid. The bouncer seemed pleased at the semi-darkness, which was no hindrance to his strange eyes. He made frequent hopping excursions among the rocks, and at last returned with great haste and clung to Kathleen's leg, making her stumble. She looked up. Bill hit his leg and shivered, declaring, What's this? There's something coming! Quaid stopped, peering into the gloom. Something certainly was coming, a great white giant that lurched toward them with startling speed. One moment it was a half-seen formlessness emerging from the shadows, the next it was towering above them, Shaggy white fur from which two insanely grinning faces glared down at them from a height of thirty feet. So sudden was the arrival that Quaid scarcely had time to draw his gun before a tree-like arm swooped down and scooped him up. He was smashed against a hairy, barrel-like chest with an impact that made him go weak and dizzy. He struggled feebly and realized that his right hand was empty. A metallic thud sounded from below. Kate, he called desperately. Beat it! Quick! I've dropped my gun! Get to camp and... His breath was squeezed out as his gigantic captor whirled and bent. Abruptly found Kathleen beside him, both of them cradled in the hollow of her great arm. Tony, she gasped. What? Hold it, kid. No hysterics. We're safe enough. I know what these things are. He tried to look down, but could see only a vague, rocky landscape jolting rapidly past as the giant lurched on into the red gloom. It's a high clops, Quaid went on, trying to wriggle free and finding it impossible. The furry arm of the creature, thickly padded with rolls of fat, held him as firmly as though he'd been squeezed between two mattresses. Not dangerous, but its cubs are. We're okay until we reach its den. Kathleen's teeth were chattering. What'll happen then, Tony? Is it bad? 
Quade forced a laugh. He hoped it didn't sound artificial. Not as bad as all that. Buck up. He fell silent as a mass of matted fur was thrust into his open mouth, and coughing and choking, he spat it out. Ugh! Kate, look up, will you? She obeyed. Yes, what? Oh, it's got two heads. I noticed that before, but I thought I was just seeing things. Above the grotesque ape-like body sprouted double heads, each with its own neck joined at the shoulders. The skulls were naked, covered with rolls of fat that sagged loosely beneath pied yellowish skin. Each face reminded Kathleen of that of a microspheric idiot, the more bestial in contour. A single luminous eye, set in a pit of fat, peered down from each head. An elongated muzzle protruded above a clownish, grinning mouth, filled with unpleasant-looking teeth. It looks like a lunatic, Kathleen gasped. I mean, they do. Tony, are they one or two? Bisexual, he told her. Single body and two heads. In one of them, the male element predominates, the female in the other. Like an earthworm, you know. Hyclops from Hydra, two or more heads, and Cyclops, one face in the center of the forehead. Wish I had my gun. At the note of despair in his voice, Kathleen twisted around to stare at him. I thought you said, Tony, something's going to happen, isn't it? Something pretty bad. He hesitated for a moment and shrugged, shrugged or tried not to. I guess so. The Hyclops cubs are the nastiest, hungriest little beasts on Ganymede. They're born with the tempers of savages, and as soon as their eyes open, they start killing and eating each other. Then this thing is taking us to its den for food for its cubs? Oh no, not intentionally at any rate. It's a funny thing. Quade was trying to distract Kathleen's attention so she would not see what was coming into view ahead. Usually only one Hyclops cub survives, the strongest one. As it gets older, it entirely loses its savagery. The adult Hyclops has the most highly developed maternal instinct of any animal. It's also one of the dumbest. It sits around watching its cubs kill and eat one another without making a move to prevent it and then can't figure out what's happened to the little beasts. So it goes out and kidnaps some other animals and adopts it, the way a mother cat will adopt puppies sometimes. Unfortunately, the poor beast the Hyclops bring home gets eaten by the cubs. So it's a case of being killed with kindness. This two-headed gorilla that's carrying us loves us both. Don't make any mistake about that, but the cubs, that's different. Kathleen was looking down, her eyes wide and frightened. The high clops was descending the side of a steep hollow, at the bottom of which a couple of gleaming white fo- forms moved sluggishly. Here it comes, Quaid whispered. If only I had my gun. The high clops reached the floor of the pit and deposited its two captives gently on the ground. Then it simply squatted on its haunches, folding its furry arms across its stomach, and watched them. Looking up at that incredible monster with its two bloated and inanely grinning heads nodding high above in the red twilight, Kathleen felt a little wave of hysteria sweep over her. Desperately, she fought it back. Quaid gripped her shoulder. We'll have to dodge the things. They can't move fast on smooth ground, but if we tried to climb out of this pit, they'd have us like a shot. Come on. There were only two cubs, each about seven feet tall, miniature replicas of their parent. But these were lean and rangy rather than fat, and their naked yellow faces wore vicious snarls rather than imbecile grins. They came loping purposely forward. Quaid seized Kathleen's hand and fled. It was an insane fight over cracking, gnawed bones that sprinkled the pit's floor under the brainlessly grinning gaze of the two-headed colossus. Marvels was sinking toward the rim of the crater, and when it was gone, Quaid knew they could no longer escape from the night-seeing cubs. The monsters made no sound as they followed the two human beings. An agonizing pain was burning to Kathleen's chest, and she would have fallen if it had not been for Quaid's arm about her. She turned up a white, perspiring face to him, her lips parted, but before she could speak, a voice came from the shadows above. I can't go on. I can't, Tony. They'll get us anyway. 
Quaid looked around quickly and saw a furry white object bound up silhouetted against Mars. Something arched through the air toward him and made a metallic clashing at his feet. He scooped it up, swirling swiftly. The cold metal of the gun was familiar against his palm. Almost upon him was the bulk of the nearer cub, its monstrous heads nodding, its paws clutching out toward him. Quaid squeezed the trigger. The creature exploded in his face, fur and flesh and whitish, curiously aromatic blood spattered. Without pausing, Quaid fired another bullet at the other cub, which was racing forward. His aim was good. There was only the parent Hyclops left now. Quaid hastily dug another bullet out of his belt and clipped it into the pistol. Triple charge, he said, dragging Kathleen after him up the side of the pit. I don't want to use it unless... Grinning, the Hyclops arose. It paid no heed to the shambles at its feet, but lumbered forward intent on recapturing Quaid and Kathleen. Quaid steadied himself and shot the monster. The recoil slammed him back against the girl, knocking them both down. Where the 30-foot Hyclops had been were two furry legs, still twitching with reflex action. Groaning, Quaid got up, rubbing his shoulder, which had almost been dislocated. Kathleen scrambled up, averting her eyes from the ruined remnants of the Hyclops. The bouncer hopped into view and clung to Kathleen's leg, squeaking gently. She bent to caress its head. You saved us that time, Bill declared with an entire lack of modesty. Tony, I think you owe him an apology. He brought you your gun. Quaid, still examining his shoulder, lifted an eyebrow. He got the Hyclops after us in the first place. No apology necessary. A light sprang up, illuminating the scene in vivid detail. Quaid whirled and voluntarily lifting his pistol. Hold it, a voice hailed. It's Wolf, Tony. Are you okay? With a sigh of relief, Quaid bolstered the weapon. We're safe now, he said in a swift aside to Kathleen. Sure, Wolf. Glad you're here. Did you hear the shots? A raw-boned, lanky figure, carrying a flashlight, hurried forward and gripped Quaid's hand. A mass of yellow hair tumbled over a thin, eager face and sharp blue eyes. Behind Wolf was Peters, gaunt and hollow-cheeked, frowning anxiously. Camp's just over the ridge, Peters said. There's trouble and lots of it. Who's this? It's a mechanic, Quaid said quickly. Let's have your helmet, Peters. He handed it to Kathleen, who slipped it over her brown curls. Keep this quiet, boy. She's a stowaway and you know what that means. The others nodded. Right, Wolf said. Come along, Tony. We'll talk as we go. Thought I had bad news, but Peters just got here and he's got worse. Kathleen was hard put it to match the long strides of the men. What about Perrin and Jorso? Quaid asked. Quickly he explained what had happened. Wolf whistled. It's Perry's fault, the dirty swine. We landed on Ganymede and started to build this set muy pronto. When we scooped out a pit for the amphitheater, we hit radium. Lots of it, the biggest find since Callisto. Way to figure it out. Perrin sent you the message and then disabled our ship and our radio so we were stuck. Then he hiked us Jorso. What for? Quaid growled. What was his game? Peters broke in. He got back to the moon in your cruiser and sold his information to Sobolin, the financier, you know, the boss of Star Mines Company. And Sobolin pulled some wires and got your option canceled. He's bought Ganymede, lock, stock, and barrel. Quaid ruffled his hair with both hands. Lord, oh Lord, did they? We've been ordered off Ganymede. Van Zorn got wind of the affair and he's nearly crazy. Started a lawsuit against Sobolin in your name. You were working for the chief when the rating was found. You had an option on the asteroid, so... That means trouble. Quaid said. Remember the old Sobolin transport scrap over Cirrus? It was a regular war between the two companies and they nearly wrecked Cirrus before they'd finished. Nearly a thousand men killed on both sides before the government stepped in. There's nothing watching can do here, Peters declared. It's dirty politics, but legal enough. What do we do, Tony? That's what I'm worrying about. Quaid hesitated, snapped his fingers. We'll have to gamble. We'll go back to Eros. It's still my property for a few weeks. Is your ship repaired, Wolf? The lanky blonde nodded. Yeah, I got the parts I need from Peters. 
Swell. We're heading for arrows then, all of us. We'll beat Sobel and Perrin and the whole system if necessary. The set's half set up. Well, we'll just have to rush and finish the job and take the picks before the other Eddie hits arrows. Come on. And that is all for today. Next week, we'll have part three, the conclusion of Hollywood on the Moon. So thanks for listening today. And just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2019.